0: Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by 90s catchphrases. Oh, no, you didn't. Now, let's kill the lights and turn this mother out.
1: Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Hennigan's. All the Scots flavor, zero alcohol smell. Drink smooth, drink Hennigan's. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome everybody to the puzzle. My name is Wes, and I am Todd, and this is the movie podcast, forever on hiatus lately, uh, where we discuss films and try to analyze them from filmmakers' perspectives. Whether it's you know the writing or the cinematography, maybe there's something cool that they're doing in the background. Well, to be
0: fair, to be fair, the reason we've been on hiatus is why because you've been making a movie than making making things, Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, So if there's ever a reason.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It was the biggest project I've done to date. Like it was a 35 minute uh, drama uh, written for a psychiatric hospital. It was uh, interesting. And I love that they had this attitude because they wanted to make a, a staff training film that, you know, was there to be a representation of the experience of the patients so that as you, as a staff member watching this, you get the full scope of someone who's had a psychotic break or, you know, some kind of uh, mental health illness issue and has landed in your care. And now you can see that, oh, they are very typical normal people, Um, I'm just catching them at the lowest point in their lives. And so by telling this dramatic telling of someone going through the system, you get to see them as a a normal person who experiences some stressors and eventually has a psychotic break, um, lands in the hospital and then gets better and goes back home and returns to being like a normal functioning person in society, but with new tools to kind of manage their their mental health uh, symptoms. Blake's ruining it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> spoiler What's, yeah i don't know if it'll ever be public um yeah. that's that's yeah. kind of on the the hospital side uh, i hope yeah. so i mean i'd love for people to experience it because it's it's a ambitious project not just because you know it was a lot to to create out of you know thin air more or less uh, but it was also a vr film along with some 2d aspects so it was a mixed project that i don't I've never seen before but maybe i just haven't seen enough vr projects to see someone uh, mesh together 2d and uh, 360 content for a vr headset before but yeah it was very cool it was a hell of a process man from the writing to which that i I mean the writing you wrote it huh yeah i wrote this thing and it's given me i think some confidence to try to create something bigger and even Say, hey, why not take a bet on yourself and see if you can finally write a feature film? And I learned a lot of lessons from it, you know, just in terms of how how I like to structure stories. And yeah, I don't
0: know. It was fun. Yeah, I w- it was it was a lot of fun because uh, I, I was in it, too. Yeah. Cast me for a small part. And my daughter, my little girl, was in it. And uh, she she did it okay. <laughs> no, there, there was that one moment where we wanted her to sing, and she always sings, but she just didn't want to sing. I guess just the camera. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But boy, that's what you get when you work with kids. Yep. Uh, they either do it or they don't. But the bed part where she was just laying in bed. She did great. Yeah. Um, and it was just so much fun to work with her. It was great and fun to work with you in that capacity. So thanks for having me. For
1: Dude, sure. yeah. Thank you for doing it. Uh, I'm man. just, yeah.
0: And I was, I'm just really proud of you for taking it from nothing to completion, man. That's pretty amazing. Like we say on this podcast all the time, you know, I don't want us to be looked at as critics. I mean, yes, we have opinions and that's what we're talking about when we were, you know, we talk about movies, we have opinions, but I, I feel like, you know, Critics, they can, they can forget sometimes that it's people that make this stuff from nothing, usually from nothing. Even when, you know, I hate on Michael Bay films, you know, like I have nothing but respect for and, and, and all the people that work, the hundreds of people that work on all these films. And, um, I just, I know what goes into making this kind of stuff and it is daunting Especially from the from the beginning when there's nothing and you have a blank page and you're like, what the hell am I gonna make? And then to take that and to make something, it's 35 minutes long and that actually like, you know, captures what the client wanted, but at the same time, what you want as an artist and what the viewer needs um, uh, to see on their in their end. It's like you gotta wear so many hats, uh, so many riding hats, and so kudos to you and to Ricky, the producer. And, uh, and it's just, it's just awesome, man. It's and if really all awesome. that
1: isn't, isn't, thank you so much. And if all that wasn't enough, we also did it in the time of a pandemic. And so, yes. Yes. <laughs> you want to talk right. about wrinkles. We filmed in Austin and Seattle. So we had to travel, uh, midway through filming and, Good Lord. And yeah, my, my producer really did a kick-ass job of, uh, keeping everything safe for everybody involved. He stayed on top of it. Like, Hey, put your mask back on and, you know, keeping everyone distant and like incredible job. And it was no easy task. And we've had nobody walk away sick from this project. That's amazing. Um, and so we that's were great. very, very happy with, uh, if nothing else with, uh, not, uh, you know, Not getting everybody sick. Yeah, that's right. I like it. <laughs> that's a win it's a big win and i'll take it man yeah (laughs) nice what uh well uh yeah what are we doing today i think we're gonna do this old movie called a few good men
0: yes sir (laughs) so spoiler alert if you have not seen a few good men uh pause this episode go watch it we're gonna be talking about a lot of stuff um and give away a lot of uh information that you'll want to see when you watch the movie instead of hearing it from our mouths so uh
1: yeah spoiler alert Nicely done. Uh, we'll talk about a lot of things-ish. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about cinematography. Like uh, I thought some of the background stuff was interesting um, in, yeah. in a very Blake, uh, vague way, but just stuff that you don't really think about as an audience member. Or probably don't so we'll talk about some of the background we'll talk about blocking uh, there's a little tiny blocking moment that I that kind of caught my eye um, as a director and you know filmmaker uh, we'll also talk about writing um, and in a lot of ways we'll talk about strong characters subtext and we'll also look at some character descriptions in a screenplay we never really get to talk about screenplay Technique, mm. and so we'll we'll touch on that and other such stuff and things and stuff.
0: And a synopsis of the, of the film: A military lawyer, lawyer, Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, defends Marines accused of murder. They contend they were acting under orders. Directed by Rob Reiner. Screenplay by Aaron Sorkin. Featuring Tom Cruise as Daniel Caffey, Demi Moore as Joanne Galloway, Jack Nicholson as Colonel Jessup, Kevin Bacon as Captain Jack Ross, Kiefer Sutherland as Lieutenant Kendrick, Kevin Pollack as Sam Weinberg, and I'm pretty sure Cuba Gooding Jr. is in there for maybe uh, 10 or 12 seconds. (laughs) That's right.
1: I strenuously object. Is that how it works? Hmm? Objection. Overruled. No, 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 no. No, I strenuously object. Oh. Wow, strenuously object, and I should take some time to reconsider. Right. I got it on the record. Yeah, hey, you also got the court members thinking we're afraid of the doctor. You object once so they can hear us say he's not a criminologist. You keep after it the way you did and suddenly on Great Cross looks like a bunch of fancy lawyer tricks. It's a difference between paper law and trial law. Sam. Christ, you even had the judge saying Stone was an expert. Sam,
0: she made a mistake. It's not relive it. I'm uh, gonna go call my wife. I'll uh, see you tonight.
1: Why do you hate them so much?
0: They beat up on a weakling. That's all they did. All right? The rest of this is just smoke-filled coffeehouse crap. They tortured and tormented a weaker kid. They didn't like him, so they killed him. And why? Because he couldn't run very fast. All right. All right. Everybody, take the night off. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I know. Look, we were working 20 hours a day for three and a half weeks straight. Just take the night off. Go see your wife. See your daughter, Joe. Go do... Whatever it is you do when you're not here.
1: (laughs) What day is tomorrow? Saturday. Start at 10.
0: Why do you like them so much?
1: Because they stand on a wall. And they say nothing's going to hurt you tonight. Not on my watch. So, I don't know the last time you saw this, but... uh, It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, what'd you think? What was your reaction kind of walking away? Yeah, let's get into it. So there's
0: so much about this movie that I love, right? There really is. Like, I, f- I feel like the acting is fantastic. Tom Cruise is so good in this movie. I mean, he's, he, I don't care what you think of him as a person. The guy is an incredible actor and you just cannot help but watch him. I mean, the the scene in there where uh, Joanne tells Tom that he, or tells Daniel That like, you know, you have them in the palm of your hand in the courtroom, you know, like she's right. But that's because it's Tom Cruise. He just, you know, he's just really, really good at what he does. And you enjoy seeing him on screen. And when he's not, you're waiting for him to come back. That's why he's literally in 95% of the shots in this film. Like he's almost never not in the shot. Uh, Obviously, Jack Nicholson, there's no there's no one better. You know, like he's fantastic in this role in particular. In these like really domineering roles, he's, he just kills, you know? And so anyway, so with that, and then the story is really interesting too. And it, and that, I'm glad you picked that scene actually, because I felt like, and, and a lot of time I felt like, what was, was it Sam who was saying that? Was it, uh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I felt like Sam I, I identified with, with, you know, his, what he, he's warring against, right? The defense of the little guy and how it's, it's hard to defend, you know, these two guys because of what they did, obviously, you know, they're following orders and that's, you know, part of what they do in the military is they just, they, they break you down and build you back up. Right. So it's, it's a, um, it's, it's kind of a war that he has. And I, I felt like I had that war too, you know, watching the film, but at the same time, you know, they do a good job of introducing you to those, those two guys and, you know, making you understand, you know, why they just don't question anything, why they just do it. Because if they question things, then people die. Right. And they say it over and over and over and over (laughs) in this movie, you know, it saves lives, you know, doing this terrible thing saves lives, you know, and whatever. That being said, there was some exhausting exposition in this film, like what you just played was way too much like you don't need she is a she is a trained lawyer she under even if she made a mistake another lawyer is not going to explain to her in that much detail why it was a mistake they're going to say what the hell were you thinking you know and they're going to have like a dialogue that's not going to be so descriptive right and obviously that was for us as the viewer and that's annoying right (laughs) I do with that said it was informative to me like what when he said that I was like yeah that does make sense you know and I didn't necessarily think of it in that way but it would have been just as good if not better if I hadn't heard it right if he had I mean if he hadn't explained all that detail and then there's a couple of shots like oh he's thinks he's going to lose so he goes and sits by a damn river and we have his you know like his silhouette against this this dark city line, you know, it's like, come on. Or he's out drinking and wet in the rain, and like that's so early '90s. Oh, so this this came out in '94, I believe. '92. So yeah. it's it's still the '80s. Yeah, '92 right. still the '80s. That's the
1: hangover. Yeah.
0: Yes, it's definitely the '80s hangover. So, and from the very moment, the very beginning of the movie, the music screams '88. Right. It's just so synthy, but yeah. not a good synth. It's like a, like a Casio synth yeah. that like, you know, they were like, Oh, we need a synth here. You don't have a synth. Let's go to radio shack and buy buy a Casio keyboard and just hit a key. Like that's what it felt like, like cheesy and wrong. And I didn't really feel too much of that throughout the rest of the movie, just cause I was watching, you know, some really good acting, but that's, I'll just cut it short there. I, I really enjoyed watching the movie it was fun uh, to see it again and you're really just watching it for that last scene for that last moment the whole time um but it was fun getting there again and um i enjoyed it so uh, but i did have those few issues with it
1: No, know you bring up a good point like uh just about how that 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 opening scene kind of Exemplifies, you know the the conversation at hand about his issue with the what these two guys did and it ends i think kind of the the thesis statement of the of the film probably comes at the very end right when uh Caffey tells dawson like you don't have to wear a uniform to have honor um, yep. and i think that's kind of at the the heart of it you wouldn't necessarily know that throughout the entire movie because everything is about how brave these men are for, you know, standing on the wall and, you know, being the, the watchman of the night and what have you, um, which I think gets a little bit into hero worship. But that's kind of what you would expect out of, you know, uh, a military setting is, you know, reverence for what they're doing, because that's why they signed up. It's not like they, they signed up to just, you know, stay home and play poker. Uh, they signed up because they understood that they're this could come at the sacrifice of your life and so it makes sense that you would play up the ultimate uh stakes of the game so to speak but i love the the point at the end is that you know there's there's no inherent honor in wearing the uniform and there's no dishonor in not wearing it either and to to see you know a a colonel was held accountable for his actions um, just as you know the actors because i think uh, at the heart of this film too is a little bit of the 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 question of you know nazi in uh, in japan uh, the nuremberg trials about is it following an order make you, uh, innocent, or do you mm-hmm. have some culpability for following an order, you know, to be wrong. Um, and yeah. so it makes sense that even though they were given an order, they were still held accountable for their own actions. And I love that Dawson has to explain to Donnie, uh, Downey what happened there. And again, it goes back to exactly what you're saying. It's exposition for us, the audience. And ultimately I think Donnie Downey, uh, was a bit of a, uh, I don't know, not, not a foil, but, uh, just, a, an opportunity for exposition to have things explained to us. So normally you would have someone who's new. We don't have anybody new in this film. Like everyone in this film, understands all the legal requirements. And so they use argumentation as a method of exposition. Like, you believe this and it's wrong because blah, blah, blah. And so it's just an opportunity to explain uh, the judicial system, specifically the military judicial system, which is different from what we are used to um, as a civilian uh, population. Yeah,
0: that's a that's a good point um, because the one piece of um, exposition I, I did – like appreciate them giving was the fact that if you accuse an officer of something without having proof, then you yourself will go to jail, right. Or be court-martialed or, or whatever. That was interesting because I, as a civilian didn't know that. Yeah. And that obviously puts a lot of weight on what happens at the end, whether or not he does go down that road, decides to go to that road and they have that long pause or whatever, you know, and you feel it. And, and a lot of times And I I talked to, to my wife, to Jenny about this afterwards. I was like, it was really interesting because, you know, a lot of times when you watch movies like court movies and and lawyer movies, law movies, I don't really feel the pressure when they're, when they're saying, when they say things like, Oh, should I put so-and-so on the stand? Or I don't know if I should put him. you know, to me, I'm like, don't just put him on the damn stand. Like, what's the problem? Like, Yeah. And ask him the damn question you need to ask him and accuse them of whatever. But in this particular case, it was like way heavier because if he didn't get – if literally he didn't get him to say that one thing, then he would go to jail.
1: Making an accusation is a lot –
0: suddenly has a lot of stakes. Right, (laughs) right. And it really helped to know that. It helped give it that weight to know that. And they didn't beat you over the head with it. They mention it and then they – like, they mention it, and then they just kind of refer to the to the action that would happen if he fails. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you get the little bit of exposition in, like, a, a line or two, and then it's hard to remember if they refer to it again, the exposition part, uh, again or not. But I don't think they do. I think they I, just tell I, you what would happen.
1: No, I yeah. think they do, because whenever uh – Tom Cruise or Kathy uh, starts making the accusation. Kevin Bacon's character, Captain Jack uh, Ross, stands up and he just goes on this long tirade about, you know, we need to dismiss the the colonel and we also need to bring him up on charges for putting him, uh, for making f- accusations without any evidence. Blah blah. blah. He goes everything I mean, right. through everything right, right then and there, yes. and it lands on the judge to make a decision right then and there. And he's like, Yes, let's hear him out. <laughs> hey, oh, yeah, shit. but that
0: was. And that to me was an exposition that was like actual part of the, yeah. you know, whatever. But, but like, it, it goes wasn't back to the point that
1: you're making, like there's stakes and it's reinforcing all the stakes yes. right then and yes. there
0: in the moment. And, right. Uh, in the moment. And then it it like hangs in the balance with this one guy's decision. Right.
1: <laughs> so good. <laughs> so good. Anyway, well, sorry. No, it's Did great. I mean, it's it's. What's what makes a courtroom drama so satisfying you know are these moments and and if they're not clearly articulated and set up then the significance and the uh, the suspense uh, just won't be there you'll just be like yeah okay whatever like moving yeah. on <laughs> um it was, yeah no I Fantastic. Yeah, I, lo- I have a big, you know, fondness for this uh, movie. Uh, I think this was the big transition for Aaron Sorkin from, you know, playwright to screenwriter. Uh, and obviously, he hasn't looked back since. But I'm always surprised to see that Rob Reiner directed it because I always think of I know. Ro- Rob Reiner as like a rom com or a com. Com- uh, comedic you know director and actor and so it's just it always catches me by surprise every time I see directed by Rob Reiner I'm like oh yeah that's right
0: it does catch me by surprise but after I saw it I was like that kind of makes sense man it kind of makes
1: underlying humor throughout the yeah, entire film
0: it, it kind of makes sense because of films I feel like he shot later after it yeah you know the mm-hmm. yeah w- what else did he do did you sleepless like what yeah he did sleepless um and yeah i just feel like and i can't even explain to you why i'm not that proficient in cinematography <laughs> myself but
1: uh, now i gotta look it up because i don't uh, maybe sleepless was penny marshall let me no directed by nora Ephron. my bad mm. but now i just want to glance through rob reiner's catalog here and that's the crazy thing he's such a like huge actor as well it's nothing this guy doesn't do good lord um, he did Spinal when Tap. When Harry Met Sally. Yeah, I didn't realize that's the one I was trying to think of. Not Sleepless mm-hmm. in Seattle. Uh, when Harry Met Sally, Misery he directed. Jeez. Oh. Uh, that movie messed me up. He did Spinal Tap. Um, obviously, The Princess Bride. That's kind of the gimme. I don't the, think this was. Is this the original Spinal Tap? Was there? He did. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, just an outrageous list of accomplishments. <laughs> Good Lord. But yeah, I mean, and the, the cast is just an all-star cast. Like you couldn't ask for much more uh, than everyone you get here. Like uh, Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Jack Nicholson, Kevin Bacon, Kiefer Sutherland, Kevin Pollock. Like you said, Cuba Gooden takes on just this, you know, 90-second roll, uh, just kind of jumps in jumps out and it just you just feel the weight of this thing feeling uh, With significance and there was also I noticed a, a small cameo of Joshua Molina Who goes on to work on other Aaron Sorkin projects? Um, like uh, he was in I think sports night uh, and the West Wing um, but if, most people if you saw Joshua Molina, you'd probably recognize him from one of your favorite TV shows, but Yeah, it's just filled with, you know, talent. And so I don't know what else you could want as a first time, you know, screenwriter (laughs) getting your shot, like every opportunity right on its face, but I'll jump into a few cinematography things, uh, that I guess coming off of my, my project, I was just kind of admiring. Um, and one of the things was like background, the background extras specifically, like if you look through a lot of these scenes, especially exterior scenes uh, like the military exercises going on, uh, right? You have a drill and you have PT, um, like all those Marines doing the the twenty one not twenty one gun salute, but you know they're rifle drills. I don't know what you call that stuff, to be honest. And you have soldiers milling about the base. Uh, then you get into the courtroom, you have the gallery, the jury, the guards, the co-counsel, uh, you know, and just so many people in it, all is there to sell the world. And it sets the scale of the universe that you're on so that you're grounded and you're able to kind of suspend disbelief that much easier. Because if you kind of cut directly into the courtroom, uh, that's fine, but it doesn't really help uh, cement the idea that uh, you're, you're on a base, you're in the military and you're watching, uh, people who are in the military. And so filling out the courtroom and it's tons. I mean, just in the courtroom alone, you probably have 25 or 30 extras that are no lines. They're dressed up, right? You got to send them through wardrobe and you got to uh, make sure that they fit the part. And they kind of speak to some element of the trial. Uh, like you have your court guards who are just kind of standing by the doors. Then you also have, People who maybe family to the uh, the the accused, or maybe family to even the counsel, and you spend all this money because you you might think, oh, whatever, you know, you spend a few hundred bucks that, you know, per person and whatever. Suddenly, though, you have to realize if this isn't your production, if this isn't like a multi million dollar Hollywood uh, project, you have to fund this yourself. So it's not just. Oh, 300 bucks, you know, it's uh, 30 people times 300 bucks. So now you're out nine grand for one day for one scene. And then you also gotta feed them, you gotta you know make sure uh, they have their wardrobe. Uh, you also have to cast them, you have to go and find these people. Uh, all that takes a lot of work just to have them sitting around <laughs> as set decoration. And then sometimes you have to direct them because you might want them to walk from here to here or pretend to be having a conversation. And so all the, and you can't just you know trust that they'll do the right thing. You have to literally make sure, hey, you're gonna walk from here to here and then stop <laughs> like don't you do a damn other thing uh, because some of these you know people they want to act and this is their what they might think they can steal the moment or whatever uh they, they have to understand that you are set dressing uh and important set dressing you're not just you know unimportant you're there to play a role though and your role is not to be in the spotlight it's to be in the background again that's just maybe one scene it don't even get into the military scenes where you have these outdoors. I don't know if they're hiring soldiers or if they were hiring extras to pretend to be soldiers in some of these sequences, because I've done that before. I've been hired as an extra to be a soldier in multiple films in one of them, Stop Loss uh, Kim pierce. They had me as an extra, like crossing the camera between an, uh, Ryan Philippe and the camera. Like I had maybe 10 to 12 inches of play or else I'm going to slam into him and knock him off his, you know, uh, path, uh, and ruin the take, or I might slam into the camera, which is infinitely worse. And so I really appreciated, you know, them, you know, putting that trust in me, and I, you know, did my best job. And after it was funny, because I am, I, I can sometimes be so like tunnel visioned that I'm here to do my job, and I'm not here to do anything else. And I took it very seriously as an extra to the point where after we you know we ran a couple takes, uh, like Ryan Philippe walked up to me and. Uh, Uh, the director, Kimberly Pierce, who's incredible both walked up to me and like, Hey, great job, man. You know, you're doing really good work. Uh, that's not something you usually, you know, do to an extra, but no, uh, but they did that. And I was like, yeah, no problem. You know, thank you. And I didn't take that (laughs) opportunity to like (laughs) ingratiate myself. Yeah. I was just like, cool. Yeah. I'm just, you know, here to do a job. And, but I appreciate. looking back now, I really appreciate that. You know, they were trying to, you know, make me feel appreciated and valuable to the set, but that's your job as an extra, like, you know, is to do a thing. Don't get a big head and don't try to steal the show do your job and get out and maybe you'll get called back or maybe you'll run into someone later on down the line or you know maybe you just get to say hey there's me in that movie and mm-hmm. well done but it takes a lot of effort is my point to make this universe feel like this universe is supposed to feel um and it doesn't happen by accident and going on and further unless you want to comment about background extras <laughs> No, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Um, I've done it, and it's it, awful. It is 99 tre- of the time. Yeah, no, you get treated like uh, pretty grossly. You, most of the time, honestly, as a background extra, you get you get crapped on uh, a lot, yeah. and you get treated as a moron. Which I get, man. You don't want to be treated that way, but at the same time, people do stupid stuff, and hope. I just wish there was a, a better way to acknowledge that you're dealing with human beings and not goldfish. And uh, like that's how you feel, like someone. I don't know t- how you treated your goldfish, but I loved mine. I treated mine very well, I guess. Eh. <laughs> For talking literal goldfish, maybe except, not. yeah, maybe except not when great. we flushed them. Yeah, <laughs> that was the the ill part. Um, but moving on, so there was a small thing they did with blocking that just kind of caught my attention. And again, this is so minute that I wouldn't expect anybody to 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 spot this and. You wouldn't expect me to talk about this, uh, or maybe you would if you listen often enough, but there's a scene where Joanne and Daniel uh, Galloway and, and Kathy are walking into the courtroom, and this is right before they're going to put Downey on the stand. And they uh, and Joanne is asking Kathy, right? The doors are closed to the courtroom and they're outside and she's like begging and pleading with Kathy to basically go slow. Hey, or I guess more. It's more commanding. <laughs> like, go slow. Uh, don't fluster Downey. Um, you promise you're going to go slow. I'm going to go slow. She's like, hey, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> like she's trying to act like she's reassuring you. Um, but there's this moment that happens right after that where they open the door and they walk inside. But Kathy doesn't turn around and close the door. He keeps walking, he exits the frame and allows the door uh, guard uh, to close it behind him. And it caught me because it it would be more human nature to close the door you just walk through. Um, Instead, uh, it looks better on camera to have the guard close it so that Kathy can cleanly exit the frame. Because if you have him turn around, it starts to feel a little clunky. It starts to feel like, what, did he just enter his house? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. But having a guard close it adds to the ambiance of the, of the courtroom. And it also makes it a cleaner visual of him entering the courtroom focused. And having someone else close it, uh, the guard, uh, makes everything less distracting and just cleaner in the edit. Uh, because now we don't even have to see the door close. We, we see a little bit of movement on the door and then we cut out as opposed to if you have him closing it you might want to see him a little bit more finishing that action uh but instead we can kind of just jump straight into uh the next bit because he's left this, the the scene uh the frame then if you cut to him again as he's interviewing Downey, it doesn't feel jarring so in a lot of ways mm-hmm. it adds to the scene and it's but it's a very small uh detail mm-hmm. that would very easily just been, yeah, go ahead and, you know, close the door when you walk in. This where you raised in a barn, You're like, uh, <laughs> but it's the detail. And I, I love that kind of stuff. It's awesome. There was one thing that I found interesting and maybe I'm reading it wrong. I don't think that I am, but it's where the doctor's on the, on the stand. And we start, I want to say we start in a close up and we kind of just dolly out and there's a vignette that's happening on the shot. And I don't think it's created by the lens like sometimes you might get a vignette, which is like a shadow around the edges of the frame, you might get a vignette because the uh, the frame or the lens is too small for uh, the sensor. And so if the sensor is larger than the lens, then it's capturing like the blackness that the lens isn't uh, having light exposed to. Uh, and I'm doing a really bad job of exposing this. But you might think it's one thing, but I think what's actually happening there is uh, the matte box. I think the the top flag of the matte box is a little too low. No. And we're oh, catching wow. the top of the matte box uh, flag. And the reason yeah. I think that is because it's uneven. Uh, there's no uh, vignetting around the sides or the bottom of the frame. It's just the top of the frame. Um, and what kind of cemented it for me is later in the, in, in the shot sequence, we cut back to that same angle, but it's gone. Like the, the vignette is gone. And so I think they saw it in post, uh, and said, Mm. uh, yeah, this one doesn't have the vignette, but the vignette has the better take uh, the better performance um and so i think they chose performance over having a cleaner frame but they they fixed it whatever happened on set they noticed like oh crap uh, the the flag is a little too low let's um, <laughs> move the flag up a little you bit you know
0: that it's interesting that you mentioned that because for whatever reason that uh, examination of the doctor felt very where you you feel like you're surrounded what is it where you feel like you're claustrophobic? It felt very claustrophobic. I think because that interview or that examination, I I think I want to feel, I feel like a lot of the camera angles were from the jury point of view. So like when we're seeing the, when we're seeing the, the the doctor it's looking this way and then we're seeing Kathy interviewing or like whatever it's this way. And then here and here, and then a lot of the other ones. So like when they're, when they're, they have Jess up on the stand and when they have the, the kids, one of the kids on the stand, it's from the other direction. It's from like the direction of like, if I was the lawyer, you know, yeah. um, that to me just, I guess it felt claustrophobic cause I knew people were behind me, you know, from the camera mm. point of view, I knew the, the jury was behind me and yeah, I, I don't know why. And I'm not sure if that was intentional. It probably was, but why I'm not, I'm not sure, but it, it maybe be, maybe to make you feel uncomfortable because you knew he was lying. He was really bad liar. Yeah. He was a really, so I guess he was a good actor cause he was a really bad liar. You could tell he was lying, just his eyes being super wide and like, almost like he had, he had practiced his responses, you know, beforehand, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which I know they all
1: do, but like practice his lying beforehand. That's really yeah. good. That was I'm, interesting. I'm about to uh, Skype you the images if I can. I don't know if it if it works on Skype. Oh, yeah. Um, but I just found it really funny, and I want you to look at what I'm looking at. <laughs> and I'll put it in the show notes as well so that everyone gets to be... And at, scrubbing through it just now, I realized that there was one other shot where there's a a bit of a top vignette. So maybe they did it at the end of one take of capturing Tom Cruise and then uh, didn't adjust for the next take until they, they did, like but I did just, you chat it to me or yeah it's in the you, chat oh, oh i don't see it crap now it's in the chat oh
0: yeah oh yeah there it is
1: super clear
0: dude yes that, <laughs> that i mean yeah the angle might be part of it but not i think that was it that yeah. was probably the reason and it's
1: oh man that's really interesting because look that the hair light On him? Yeah, completely different. Um, And I could have picked a a different one for the vignette because they start in that close up uh, with the other vignette shot and they have other shots with. Yeah, it's. I just find it really hilarious. Like, it's. But I find it kind of cool too because I'm kind of that person where I would rather have a better uh, performance than a cleaner camera shot. Um, Yeah. Give me performance any day. And yeah, that's just the. more important in turn, unless it's just really, really, really obvious that something's wrong in the frame, then sure. I would rather have people emotionally engaging with the film than, you know, DPs kind of nitpicking like, Oh, why'd you do that? And like, well, stop mm-hmm. being a DP for a second and be an audience member.
0: Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fine. <laughs> Look, people make films, you know, right. and because people make films, things happen and,
1: It is what it is. The performance is there. That's the more important thing. Yeah, I agree. Do what you got to do. But moving on, uh, we can talk about uh, the writing a little bit. One of the things that makes this film so good, and I would say Aaron Sorkin on average, um, but this specifically, is he writes really strong characters. And by that, I mean, it's people with very strong opinions and views like their worldview uh, isn't usually much in doubt. They state it very clearly and so that they can have a very direct argument. And it's great. And he establishes his characters really well, too. If you look at Caffey, like the first few scenes we meet him in are just pitch perfect in terms of establishing who this guy is. You you know, he's kind of the brilliant slacker, right? He's playing softball the first time we meet him instead of being in a meeting uh, that was going to be for his client. Like he's supposed to be negotiating a plea deal for his client, but he skips it, goes to softball instead and still gets what he wants. Like He's still able to negotiate his way, so he gets to do two things he wants. He gets the deal that he wants, uh, which makes him look like a badass lawyer, and he also gets uh, to play softball, which is what he really cares about. And then in the next scene we see him, he's late to a meeting, Um, and of course he doesn't necessarily get what he wants there. But walking into the next meeting, when he first meets Joanne, uh, he's eating an apple. It's just kind of this sloppy, I don't really care, like I'm a casual uh, kind of person. Um, and it's a great way to accept, kind of keep this rhythm going of him being this uh, very slacker type, but brilliant. Um, and before reviewing the case, right, he's already kind of come up with a plea deal so that he can escape court. Like, yeah, 12 years, done. What's next? <laughs> like, um, and it, Also kind of goes to he doesn't really care so much about the client or about truth or justice or any of that crap. Uh, He's just kind of there to fulfill a duty and move on and do to the stuff that he really wants to do, which is, you know, softball, uh, apparently. But even... People who seem like they don't really have an opinion or a strong worldview still do. Like if you look at uh, Dawson, if you get pushed far enough, he will eventually yell what he thinks. And a lot of the time, the characters are just yelling at each other. This is one of the things I'm kind of hot and cold about with Aaron Sorkin scripts is that usually it's people yelling at each other, which if it's a different writer and if the story isn't good enough, will lose you. But luckily, he's just an amazing writer and tells a really good story and picks uh, very good angles and makes it zippy and it makes it enjoyable. You're hearing people yell, but it's fun, right? Oh, you object? Oh, no, no. You're strindling object. <laughs> like, oh, well, in that case, like he's making it fun. He's, you know, like you're saying, he's giving exposition, but he's also making it super entertaining along the way. Even whenever someone is having a meltdown, right? Thank you for playing. Should we or should we not follow the advice of the galactically stupid? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just so entertaining to hear someone cut down. (laughs) He does a marvelous job of, uh, you know, creating pejoratives and put downs and uh, snappy comebacks and a lot of it. And I feel like he's finally starting to move away from this. I don't know if you want to call it a trope, but for me, it's become this kind of cliche setup and payoff of uh, someone saying something. Uh, colonel, what? I am a colonel, and I would appreciate it if you address me as such. I'm pretty sure I've earned it. Like, someone might say something, and someone says what, and it just kind of sets the tee on the on the uh, the ball, the softball on the tee, so that someone can kind of hit it out of the park. And he's doing that constantly throughout, you know, the first ten or fifteen years of his career. Like, watch The West Wing, watch uh, Newsroom watch a lot of his stuff which are all amazing but they all have these kind of setup easy setups and easy payoffs these straw man arguments that i'm going to create the argument that's really easy to knock down to make my character look like a badass um and he's he's constantly doing that but because it's so enjoyable he gets away with it um and he does a great job so All the characters are arguing their viewpoints, which also brings to light the facts and issues of the case. And so none of it's ever put to waste. It's it's never really uh, wasteful writing in the sense of there's utility behind it. And so he does the two things that most writers don't do well, which is I'm going to give you exposition and I'm going to make it really damn fun. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm also while doing that, I'm going to reveal character traits and character personality. In the process, like even hearing Sam at the beginning uh, when we played that clip of why he doesn't like Dawson and Downey is very revealing of his worldview. Like he's he doesn't like these guys, and it's not just you know giving us uh, insight into who he is, but it's also giving us a counter argument for why we may not be for them. Um, it's, it's putting us in the seat of the jury and we're constantly being evaluating of, is this true? Or is this not true? Like even at the beginning, the opening scene, right? We open on the scene of the crime where they're going in. And they're more or less killing this guy. Intentional or not, it doesn't really matter. They killed a guy. And so we see it happen. That's never the question. Uh, and so we're put in the same exact, from the opening of the of the film, we're put in the same exact position as the jury, uh, who also knows in the opening arguments, these guys did it. The juries are being told exactly what we were told. Um, and so mm-hmm. they're doing a really good job of putting us in, in the jury's uh, shoes. And it's, yeah, it's, Fantastic writing. It puts you on a a really fun journey. One of the other writing things I really enjoyed uh, was the first meeting with Dawson and Downey. I don't know if Joanne is in there, but uh, Sam and Daniel are both in there. And it's so good. And it's so hard to do because there's this subtextual energy that's coursing through the scene that doesn't really get addressed until the end of the scene, which is that Dawson does not like Kathy doesn't like him he doesn't respect them but the way he does it is by being super formal with formalities and showing uh, his due respect that's explicitly owed uh, based on his rank and position. Um, mm-hmm. and it's it's the refusal the refusal to be casual that hints at his disdain for Kathy and it's so perfect because you it's a, it's a vibe. it's a vibe that's created and if you were to just read the words on the page, You may not pick up on that vibe, but seeing it played out, seeing the stiffness of uh, of Dawson uh, really helps communicate. And then finally, at the end, uh, the suspicion is, you know, contextualized by Kathy's final remarks. Right. Like, hey, get used to the idea that I'm the only friend you have. And that is just an implication of what was going on throughout that scene that we suspected that we felt but was never articulated until that moment. And it's great. Like, that's hard to write. And that's uh, hard to think about, because I think as a writer, uh, too many instincts are to make it plain to the reader instead of just creating a subtext, a vibe through, you know, situational awareness. But it it takes a little bit of trust from the writer to the audience to say, hey, I believe that you're smart enough as a human being, as a social creature you can pick up on uh, the, the the social you know subtleties that are going on here.
0: Well, they're very different people. Yeah, you know, Caffey um, and and Downey like they're just so different. And I I do like how I, I really like how Sorkin gives Downey the the opportunity. Dawson. Dawson. Yeah. Sorry. Downey. Dawson. <laughs> uh, the opportunity to say his piece. Right with what he thinks of Caffey, because I mean the whole time Caffey's like, you know, he's this like, you know, I can't lose, you know, pompous kind of a-hole that doesn't even belong in the Navy in in JAG. You know what I mean? Like he just is only there to do his, like she she called him out, you know, um, he's only there to do his three years and then, you know, like be gone with it, you know? And he thinks, you know, they're guilty. They're going to lose. That's it. And so Dawson Dawson uh, uh yeah. <laughs> yeah, knows it, knows it and calls him out basically on it, you know, cause Dawson wouldn't quit anything ever, ever. And that's what Caffey does. Like that's all he does. That's what he's, his, he like, that's why he hasn't seen the inside of a courtroom because he doesn't fight for anything. And Dawson's the Downey, whatever is this exact opposite yeah. of that. So, Yeah. So it's such good writing, man.
1: It really is. And it helps by creating characters with strong points of view, because if you can Mm -hmm. start with that, then the writing becomes so much easier because now you have reasons for your characters to conflict Um, because they, they believe one thing and this other character believes another. And now we get to hear both sides of the argument and hopefully it's a, it's steel man arguments. It's something that uh, makes sense instead of, you know, kind of a straw man. Like if you're writing a political uh, you know, thriller or whatever political drama, and you wanted to have Republicans arguing against Democrats, it would be kind of crappy to kind of take these facile arguments so that, you know, if you're a, a Republican and creating a liberal argument uh, to to knock down, well, if be honest and create something that is worthy and that actually represents the other point of view instead of just saying, oh, you know, whatever, to take a, a highly uh, or a, a very light, you know, topic abortion, like, oh, you just like killing babies. That's, you know, that's a little easy to knock down, right? That's not an honest point of view if you're going to uh, try to depict this uh, worldview or this belief system. Um, and so, Having, and I think he did a great job in this script of creating even that opening clip that we played. You had one person, Sam, saying, I think these guys were just picking on someone who was weaker than them. And uh, Joanne comes back and says, I think, you know, they're doing something that's impossible. And I respect them for that. And so you have two very stark points of view that both deserve equal attention and your consideration. And again, that goes back to us being the jury. There were a couple of things that were interesting, and I I kind of put this under writing, but it might fall under editing, but I think it falls under writing. (laughs) Uh, One is there's this weird out-of-sequence flashback of a meeting between Jessup, Kendrick, and Markinson where they're discussing what to do about Santiago, Yep. and we have very clearly established that Santiago is dead uh, so we're we're seeing this completely out of sequence somehow it works uh, and I don't think I've ever questioned it until this viewing and I've seen this movie a good 15 to 20 times like as a kid oh it, it would just come on HBO all the time whenever I was at my my father's uh, and so every time it came on I'd kind of just watch it <laughs> it's like because HBO at uh, They get rights for a film and the the first month, you know, no one watches HBO live anymore. Everyone streams it, I'm sure. Uh, But whenever they pick up a new movie, uh, they run it constantly for the first two months. And every single day you're going to catch it on one of the HBO channels. And so it would be one of those things like, yeah, okay, I can watch this again. (laughs) Um, But it never stuck out to me as a weird out of sequence thing. But they don't really address it as a flashback. They show it as if it's happening in real time. Um, but you just know that this is out of sequence. It's a very strange decision. Uh, I mean, I understand why it happens, um, because we need to understand Markinson's, uh, perspective. Um, but I think they also could have edited it out without really losing anything. Um, but I think it works. I think it plays well and it, it's fine. It just struck me as very odd. I've never seen that before. I don't think i yeah, I
0: loved it. I think it just like played into the whole like, hey, viewer, figure it out. You better be following along. Mm. You know what I mean? Because and and who knows? Maybe it was maybe that was gonna be the beginning of the movie, and then they got into making it, and they were like, no, let's make the beginning of the movie be when Santiago dies, right? Let's let's you know. So maybe. When he wrote it, who knows, maybe the first version of it had that meeting as like the beginning or something or form of that meeting as the beginning. Hmm. Who knows?
1: Who knows? Who knows?
0: But it
1: just was like a little. It establishes those characters really well, like Jessup, who he is and how he acts, Kendrick, how dedicated he is and how Jessup and Markinson feel about Kendrick. Because when he leaves the room, he's like that guy ain't all there and he's like yeah you know he's a damn good soldier <laughs> yeah um, it's like well well there you go that's what they care about and so there is a value there is you know a value aspect to that scene where they're where we're understanding their value system of what's important versus what isn't and to them being a good soldier is more important than anything else and yeah uh, the other thing that I thought was cool in terms of editing slash writing was they're swearing in. I think maybe the uh, after the opening arguments, um, we see Caffey sit down and they begin swearing in the first witness. And what's cool is we're listening to him being swore in, but we're watching Caffey and Dawson. And it's cool. It's a cutaway to characters exchanging looks and it's building the depth instead of focusing on, you know, this useless formality. Uh, we're going to take this moment to create, you know, some subtext between what is going on in Dawson and Caffey's life, you know, their relationship. Because Caffey just stood up there and gave a really strong statement and, and uh, showed that he's putting his ass into this thing. Um, and it was one of those things where Dawson is like, yeah, I see you, but I'm not there with you yet. And it was almost like the first hint of possible respect, but he's not nearly won over. Um, and it's right. all in just a look. And it was just smart editing because you could have, you know, you could have written that we just watched this guy getting sworn in, which is freaking useless. What are we going to do with this? Um, but instead to use that moment to, to kind of build a little bit more into the world. The other small question mark I put on this was the, the use of baseball. They didn't, mm-hmm overly pound it but i feel like maybe they're using a little bit of baseball as a metaphor Um, and again they don't really state this out loud but i think there's two aspects of baseball that kind of applied here which is that it in baseball right it's not over until the last out it doesn't matter if you you know you're down 10 nothing in the ninth inning uh two outs full count you still got one more pitch coming your way that could change the game. And in that way, of course, uh, and it's also a pitcher versus a batter, right? You have a pitcher standing up there and he's throwing things at you. And as a batter, you're just trying to to make contact uh, and put it into play. And so I feel like that kind of is the scenario that we had between Caffey and Jessup, you know, in the final, the final, uh, Confrontation of Caffey is this pitcher who's throwing everything that he's got at him, and he's trying to shake the batter. And you know, Caffey's just been up there just knocking things left and right until uh, finally Caffey just throws one by his nose, sets him back on his heels, and starts going after him. Strike, 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 and suddenly he's on his ass. Uh, And yeah, it's super metaphorical. Like I said, they don't really. Dig heavily into that. It's just more lightly around the idea of baseball is around and it's never, you know, on the nose. But I thought that was interesting and um, in, in a fun way. Uh, but it, I would say it doesn't ultimately add much to the film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I get that. One of the I was curious just from a screenwriting aspect, how. Aaron Sorkin writes his character descriptions. Uh, this is something we've never discussed on. I, if we have, we haven't done much of it. There's a there's a problem in writing character descriptions for women. We're usually, there's traditionally, you've had men making all the movies. You've had men writing all the scripts. But that doesn't mean uh, <laughs> they've done a good job, right? And so yeah. normally, if a guy writes a, a woman character, it's going to be a really shitty description to the effect of, Joanne, cute but doesn't know it, or you know, beautiful but doesn't know it, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. Yeah. smart, class, whatever. They're usually pretty shitty descriptions. And you would think some people uh, who are beyond this aren't actually beyond it. Uh, there's there's writers that I, I admire um, that seem to have some problematic character descriptions as well. If you go back and read the character description that Joss Whedon wrote for Wonder Woman, it's it's not great. I mean, uh, you would. You'd be hard pressed to not call it uh, problematic, and I'm trying to, you know, be, uh, I don't know, conservative or non-inflammatory at a minimum. (laughs) Um, But it's just like uh, this is a little, uh, you know, not good. But and so that made me curious uh, because this is a massive trope. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's like Twitter feeds out there that just punch in and tweet out character descriptions of women just for fun. Uh, and by fun, I mean uh, exposure uh, because that needs to be, you know, discussed and, and corrected. Hopefully for the record, I never write my woman character de- descriptions like that. I just, I would never write any character description that way. I think it's a bad way to to help a actor get into the mindset of who this character is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because the nice thing um, about a character description is that in a screenplay, all you ever get to write is what you see and what you hear. Do you see it? No. Do you hear it? No. Well, don't write it. Like you only get to write what you see and what you hear, except with a big asterisk. The one cheat that you get is in a character description. This is your one time because uh, there's something in seeing someone in their wardrobe and on screen that you don't get to really do in a script Mm there. You know, if you were to see, Idris Elba on screen that gives you a different feeling than if you see uh, Denzel or Morgan Freeman like these are all attractive black men but they all carry a different weight and maybe their character is coming from a different place and so this is the one cheat and that gives you an insight into the character who they are as a person not just what they look like but who they are their inner workings and it's a usually you you only take a, a comma like maybe it might be Joanne. Uh, if if Joanne wasn't such a major character in this film, it might be something simple like Joanne, whip smart, but tone deaf, uh, walks into the room. Right. That kind of that's how I would describe Joanne. Like she's freaking on it, but she's a little she doesn't always, you know, appreciate situational awareness. <laughs> um, yeah. And so. That would be how you r- normally write a character that says, oh, OK. And that kind of sets up your expectation for what's going to come out of her mouth or her actions. But because she is a bigger character, Aaron Sorkin really took his time in describing and letting you get into who she is as a person. And so I'll just read from the screenplay what he wrote. A woman. Great. Um, And this is, you know, the the just to remind everybody, this is a scene where she's walking after seeing all these marine drills with the guns, we pan over to reveal Joanne and she, you know, is walking across the, uh, the courtyard and mumbling to herself like these really bad uh, buildup of the request that she's going to make. And so in just this short time, this is what he says, a woman, as she walks across the courtyard toward the brick building, the woman is Joanne Galloway, a Navy lawyer in her early 30s. She's bright, attractive, impulsive, and has a tendency to speak quickly. If she had any friends, they'd call her Joe. As she walks, she mutters to herself, I'm requesting, I'm captain i'd like to request and that goes gets into the dialogue yeah. but that's a pretty good description and i probably i don't know if i would have would have included attractive i think it makes sense for him to include it just because later in the film like her sexuality uh, or she gets sexualized i should say not her sexuality but she gets sexualized by multiple characters in the in the film so to some degree it might make sense to to you know indicate that she's attractive But regardless, I think it would have played just fine. The thing I don't understand as a writer-director, I guess, of someone who, you know, goes and wants to point out the attractiveness of a female character is... It doesn't matter. I'm going to cast her. And if I'm not, someone else is going to cast her. And if they think she should be, you know, XYZ look, they're going to cast for that. You don't have to tell someone what they're going to cast for. They're going to cast what they cast. And you writing how hot or not hot you think this character is isn't really going to help the, the story this isn't story yeah. relevant at all so why not yeah. just focus on the things that are story relevant which is her internal driving and what makes her an interesting person in your film in the first place mm-hmm. and so with that in mind i have not read the other character descriptions but i just want to see how he wrote uh kathy and let's see if i can dig him up no not gibbs attractive no. I know. We'll, we'll see if he throws that in there. Lawrence, no. The right man for the job. Oh, that's funny. He labeled this. His name is Lieutenant Junior Grade Daniel Al- Alistair Caffey, and it's almost impossible not to like him. At the moment, he's hitting fungos to about a dozen lawyers who are spread out on the uh, softball field on a corner of the base, corner of the bass, I assume. that. Yeah, I don't know what the bass is. Uh, the 27 Yankees, they're not, but they could probably hold their own against a group of, say, air uh, cord, dentist Caffey's in his late twenties, 15 months out of Harvard law school and a brilliant legal mind waiting for a courageous spirit to drive it. He is at this point in his life, passionate about nothing except maybe softball. Yeah. He didn't feel the need to point out that he's attractive, uh, uh for better or worse. And, you know, again, he, the, the inclusion of attractive, you know, might be, I would say lightly problematic, but it's not the worst offender when it comes to screenwriters. I have seen far, far worse. And so I would give Aaron Sorkin, who needs none of my kudos or, uh, you know, give a shit. Uh, I would give him like an A minus. Like that's it's a pretty strong character description. It gives you a lot of information about who she is. And I think that's that's uh a lot to work with as an actress. Uh, however, I'm sure as an, as an actor, if, if Demi Moore read that and like attractive, Oh, thanks buddy. Um, and that might yeah. be, that still might, you know, give you an eye roll and rightly so. Um, regardless mm-hmm. Demi Moore knocked it out of the park. She's an incredible actor. Yeah. She's amazing.
0: So is that, is, is it a, uh, uh, um, a thing now to not say actress, do you just say actor? Is it like a generic, Yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm a little bit all over the place. Like, uh, I think it depends on the person. Uh, I've heard some actresses refer to themselves as such. Um, and I've heard Mm -hmm. those same people also refer to themselves as an actor. And I think, I think both are fine. I think if you call them, uh, a woman, an actor, that's perfectly fine. Um, but to your, I think to your bigger point, is it problematic to call them an actress? I don't inherently think so, but I'm sure a lot of people will disagree with that. And I'm fine with that. Like, uh, I don't have a big stake in that argument. Um, and you can certainly point to the fact that I'm a dude and and rightly so. But my impression, I should say, isn't that it's super offensive or an offensive thing, but maybe it's becoming a little more antiquated uh, in terminology. Yeah. I mean, it makes it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Nice. Yeah, that's Pretty much uh, all I had in terms of. So what would? So you've
0: seen this like fifteen times. So you must give it a high rating. What would you say? What'd
1: yeah, you I at this point. I mean, I, I'm sure there's times when I'd give it a ten. I think at this point, I'm at, I'm at like a nine, uh, just because I've seen so much Sorkin that I the some of the Sorkinisms uh, start to wear on me a little bit. Like whenever he turns around and there he's made the decision to go to court and and be the lawyer he turns around and gives them like you know 90 seconds of detailed uh directions like i want a ha- box of half half dozen box of uh red pens a half dozen box. Uh, oh yeah box of black pens black or whatever pens. i was like you could have just said a box of red and black pens like <laughs> Yeah. But it's all there to add like uh, gravity and uh, the sense of uh, urgency and prominence to the the mission they're about to undertake. It's like, you know, let's load up on candy bars. We're going on a mission. <laughs> OK, <laughs> got, got it. <laughs> what about you? Nine, nine.
0: Uh, yeah, I would probably give it an eight. Um, uh, I think that maybe the last time I saw it, I would have given it, you know, a nine. Just some of the shots are so dated and the music is just I can't get past it. And you know how I am with with music and movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, we both are really, yeah. honestly. Um, and we're spoiled with Hans Zimmer and Super. um now. So listening to anything but is kind of just less than. Not that I expected, you know, that that necessarily in this, you know, being from the early nineties, but uh is definitely those aspects definitely dated it and there are movies from the early nineties that I would give 10. So, uh, yeah, a, a solid eight. Um, and that's mostly because of the acting and some of the writing, but very much less of the cinematography for sure.
1: Yeah. And I agree with what you were saying earlier about Tom Cruise. I mean, he's such a good actor. Like there are very few Tom Cruise movies where I'm like, this is a bad movie and he is a part of that reason on average. Like ninety percent of his movies, I enjoy his performances, um, and he absolutely is a good reason to watch this thing. Because watching him interact with Demi Moore um, and obviously Jack Nicholson, it's all just magic, man. I love it. Yeah. Heck yeah. Agreed, dude. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, what are you going to recommend this week? Ah, uh, man. Okay,
0: so I I needed a laugh, and I think I've told you about this before. Um, and I checked and I have not recommended it. So I'm just going to recommend it now. Uh, Mike Brabiglia's it, uh, stand up on Netflix, just all of it in general. But, um, he has one that came out. What year did it come out? Uh, it doesn't say, but it's called the new one on Netflix. And it's really good because like a lot of times, you know, comedians just get up and they, and they tell you jokes, right. And, or they be funny, but this one is different because it just leads to something what you already recommended what? this i already looked it didn't i didn't see it look at week 99 episode 99 no. Minehunter. hunter yep <laughs> oh i was looking for mike yeah. i did a search and i looked for mike uh oh, you i why I, so I was like wait a minute i thought i recommended this yeah all right well then you tell me yours god <laughs> the- i was like
1: yeah. So I recommended I I recommended it. I'm gonna recommend uh this really badass new tool. Our friend Joe Howells created a, a cinema tool and it's called oh, yeah. Cinema Atlas, um, which is Cinema Atlas combined. Instead of two A's, it's one A. So imagine Cinema Atlas but com, but only one A, Cinema Atlas. Um, because what is it's really cool, it does a It allows you to do a few things. Like sometimes you don't know an actor's name, um, and so it's it's kind of hard to Google that or look it up on IMDb uh, because you're like, I think this guy that I'm I'm watching in A Few Good Men was also in Mindhunter. And so what it allows you to do is cross-reference films to see where the overlap is and uh, the top build, like whether it's someone in the cast or someone in the, like the director, the screenwriter, um, or the the cinematographer, like you're able to kind of see where the overlap is. uh, Or if you wanted to see how many movies have demi moore and uh, tom cruise been in like you can insert their names and it'll give you all the films that they've been in or maybe you want to see how many of the crew that did all three lord of the rings so you might say how many how many people did all three lord of the rings cool how many of those people also did all three of the hobbits Whoa. That's really cool. Like it's, it's kind of a nerd, nerd way to nerd out, but sometimes you, you might not just, you're, you're thinking, man, I know this actor was in this other movie. I just don't know his name or what character. And so you can just kind of insert those two names, um, and pull it up, but I'll link to it. Uh, I've used it a few times actually, like sometimes, uh, it's much faster sometimes than, you know, scrolling through IMDb where I can just kind of look up a movie and another movie. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, that was, uh, Mike. Berber- it works pretty well. Perfectly. Yeah, no, it's, it's freaking dope. And he's still improving awesome. it. Like this is, uh, the minimal viable product, uh, yeah. that he was able to launch. And so it's only going to get better and, uh, have more fun tools and whatnot. Um, but that guy's amazing, dude. Gosh. He is just brilliant. <laughs> yeah. When I
0: saw him launch that, I was like, what that's incredible it's like that's ai right there you
1: know it's badass no he did a great job uh well done joe um and again I'll, i'll link to that on the uh on the in the show notes and i might you know let it run in a few more episodes uh just to give my man some backlinks um Uh, That hopefully helped because we're we're a movie website and so he's running a movie website and everybody wins. (laughs) Awesome. I love it. Nice. What about you? What are you going to recommend again?
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm going to recommend Uncut Gems, which is on Mm. Netflix now. You and I were lucky enough to see this in the theater before, you know, the pandemic hit. And just a really good example of an amazing artist and actor getting who's funny getting a chance to do something a little bit more, I don't want to say real, but I'm just going to say real and just destroying it. Just, yeah, it's, it is Adam Sandler's best work or some of his best work for me. For me, like, I, you know, there's other amazing stuff that he's done. That's, that's serious. Uh, but this is just a whole nother level for him. And the filmmaking is amazing. And it's this whole new, like different style, uh, and it, it's just so enjoyably tense the entire time. You just feel like you're just on this roller coaster. It's amazing. And it's on Netflix, so it's free right now. So you have no excuse. Go watch it, except if you don't have two hours and 15 minutes because it's kind of long. But it's great.
1: How are- <laughs>
0: yes. Yes. the whole movie I'm right there with him I'm right there with him I get it
1: so good great recommendation damn good yeah man. nice yeah. well stay tuned for next week we're going to cover Inception the Christopher Nolan film that you may have heard of once or twice before um, and I'm sure we'll talk about some fun stuff definitely the music if nothing else like that soundtrack redefined uh, the way people were making music <laughs> and yeah making trailers like the way trailers were made after that uh completely changed and christopher nolan seems to have that effect um on the on the industry uh but i also want to say uh, shout out to Junie Marie and so many people. We had a lot of great reactions to our last episode, which was 13th. And if you haven't listened to that one, go, go watch it on YouTube. I actually insert, uh, whenever I'm going through the cinematography for that, for that post, I actually went through and inserted a lot of the visual references that kind of discuss the cinematography that I'm talking about. So you can see the literal stuff that as I'm discussing it. Um, but we had a lot of great, uh, responses to that. And Junie Marie, you know, made a really great comment. So did, uh, Izzy shout out to my man and he has some really great things. You can check the the show notes on that episode for that. But one of the things that Junie Marie uh, pointed out was that, you know, we can cover more black films. Um, And so I think in the coming, you know, forever uh, we'll be mixing in more black films. Uh, We tend to focus a lot on sci-fi and fantasy, and there's not a ton of black films in that, that category. And so right or wrong, we're going to uh, remedy that. Uh, And so, you know, every, two or three films, uh, we will intentionally mix in, uh, a, a black film at, at a minimum and probably work in some other stuff. Uh, you know, other people of color for sure. Asian film or, uh, but uh, in Latin, you know, Hispanic film, uh, if you, if you will, but, American centric, like we've done foreign films, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about the American experience seen through the eyes of, you know, other people of color. And so there's a lot of great ones. Um, There are specific ones that I do not want to cover. And that's going to be specifically, I don't want to do any slavery films and I don't want to do any segregation films, Uh, not because there aren't incredible films about those topics worth discussing um, and worth watching, Um, but because. Most, and next week I'll bring some stats. I'm gonna do my own research and bring some stats, but I think they just have too much representation in uh, like the Academy Awards. Like they're just overly represented. And so you're gonna be already familiar with those issues in those films. And so I want to try to help expose everyone to a lot of amazing black films that are just either about the black experience in modern America um, or maybe in a historical context that you hadn't considered before. There's a, a really amazing mo- movie uh, called Belle that I just love. And I think I've recommended before uh, by Gina Prince-Rytherwood, who I just freaking adore. And I wish she was making a movie a year, um, but she doesn't get nearly enough recognition as a filmmaker, let alone as a black woman filmmaker, but she's, she's made some great films. Uh, there's been other really amazing black work, uh, love Jones. Um, there's so many moonlight. Uh, there's so many really amazing, uh, movies that have nothing to do. Uh, and you don't have to see black people in this being subjugates to white people, um, because that's, I feel like one of the problems in America is that's all we ever get to see black people in on a big screen, and so we need to recontextualize reality for people, um, and that's just kind of our small contribution. And I, there's tons of Spike Lee movies. There's so many incredible black filmmakers that I want to watch and just dis- and discuss and uh, hopefully help people discover. And I you know think it'll be fun. You're. We're going to do what we do, um, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to see a lot of great films. Yeah, so thank you, Junie Marie, for that.
0: Awesome. Uh, So we'll
1: leave you with a quote
0: of the day from Harper Lee from To Kill Kill a Mockingbird. They're entitled to full respect for their opinions. But before I can live with other folks, I've got to live with myself. The one thing that doesn't abide by majority rule is a person's
1: conscience. Wow, that's amazing writing. (laughs) Harper Lee... Uh, well, our good friends actually, uh, named their daughter from this novel, uh, Scout, like, you know, Jay, oh, yeah. Jay Holzer, <laughs> um, he, him and Ashley named their daughter Scout, uh, after Tickle Mockingbird, which is, really I didn't really
0: cool. know that's where it came from.
1: Yeah. Super cool. Like, I hope I get that kind of inspiration, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was tough trying to find, a, a, a an appropriate quote just because we're in a courtroom, um, and there's all these discussions about integrity and honor and blah, blah blah um and so this is kind of what I what I landed on and I love it I, I you know it, contextually it's a little bit different because you know the if you haven't seen To Kill a Mockingbird, it's a little more racially motivated uh, by a little, I mean entirely, but it's still, you know, the thing holds true, right? A person's conscience is individual and it can't be dictated by a majority. And you have to live with your conscience. So hopefully uh, you've been honing it to, to, to do the right thing. Um, but yeah, incredible writing.
0: Yeah, and this is – it's its so brilliant because it calls out the difference between an opinion and a conscience. I mean, you know, you can think – you can have an opinion on something and it can be affected by a bunch of other people telling you that that is wrong, you know? And then all of a sudden you can start thinking, oh, maybe that's wrong. But a conscience, like that tells you something else. Like that like is something deeper in you that that says this is right or this is wrong. And you could hear a hundred other people say, no, 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 you're, you're wrong about that. But, and, and even if you change your opinion on it, your conscience doesn't change. Right. I mean, I think after a while you can kill a conscience that yeah. is definitely possible. Um, and there's been plenty of terrible examples of that throughout the world, but that takes a lot longer or is a lot harder to do, um, than changing an opinion for sure. And it's, a, it's just a brilliant quote because calling the difference between those two things, uh, making that aware. Yeah
1: it's amazing heck to the yeah uh, um, don't forget to subscribe review us on iTunes and leave us a note if you want us to talk about a thing uh, and if you want to comment on this episode you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash a few good men so
0: thank you guys for joining us I had a blast Wes this is Same. fantastic I cannot wait for next week Inception it's going to be fantastic another Nolan film uh, so make sure to watch that before next week and until then I'm Todd I'm Wes go watch the go watch the movies